0: your Bibles, go ahead and open them back up to the book of Job. We're going to kind of pick up where we left off um, last week, and it was um, an appropriate break because we kind of heard from everyone else last week, uh, but we haven't heard from God. (laughs) We haven't heard from what God has to say directly to Job um, in this book. So that's where we're going to be, really chapters 38 through 42 are the main focus uh, this morning, so if you want to go ahead and turn we 're going to be reading probably a lot of chapter thirty eight uh, particularly, but before we do that i 'm just going to go ahead uh, and ask God for help for us this morning. Father, um, it is a, such a a cool thing and an, an awesome privilege where we get to do this as, as your people. We, we come together and we give our attention to your actual living and active voice. Um, your word, which is far beyond anything we could ever say. Lord, we sometimes, we often speak, though we have very, very, very little knowledge. And yet when you speak... It is the truth, and so I pray that by your spirit you would open our ears this morning to hear you, and you would open our eyes to behold the wonderful things that you have prepared for each one of us. May you be glorified this morning in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So for pretty much the past 30 chapters of Job, Job has been crying out to God. Why? Why, God? Why me? Why have you done this to me? In fact, last week, part of his suffering that we considered was that he really had zero explanation for why he was suffering. God, what have I done to deserve this? Why are you tormenting a righteous man like me? Has anyone ever felt like that? Well, this morning, as I said, we're going to look at God's direct reply to Job. Only God is not going to answer Job. If you haven't read this book, God is not going to answer Job's questions directly like you might expect. In fact, rather than give Job direct answers to his question, why does a good person like me have to suffer, God is actually going to turn it and ask Job a lot of questions of his own. Job wants to know, if God is just and I am righteous, then why would he afflict me with such a punishment? And Job's friends that we looked at last week, they want to see they want Job to understand that because God is just and because God is afflicting Job, then Job must be being punished for some sin that he is keeping back from God. And then there's all of us. All of us want to know if God is good, Isn't this the classic question? If God is good, then why do bad things happen to good people? But I'm going to warn you again up front, this is not the question that Job is going, that God is going to answer for Job, at least not directly. And I've entitled the sermon this morning, Let's Take a Trip to the Zoo. Because that's really the way that God is going to answer this question for Job. Let's take a trip to the zoo, Job, because the vast majority of what God is going to say in these chapters comes in the form of this poetic tour of God's majestic natural world and his animal kingdom. Rather than simply tell Job what he is up to with his specific trial, God is going to invite Job in to consider all of the many things that he doesn't know the millions of creation activities that are being sustained every single day for which Job had no say and has no control over right now. Where were you, Job, when I created everything? Do you know about all the many complex and beautiful wonders of the animal world? Are you able to send down lightning from heaven and open up storehouses of snow? Job, can you tame the massive creatures of land and sea? Now, to review a little bit from last week, remember, we looked at this conversation that was going on between God and the Satan, the great adversary, and how God had permitted Satan, he had actually given Satan permission to afflict Job, and Job ended up losing everything in a single day, and yet refused to curse God. And then we looked at how Job's friends stepped in to try to console him. But as soon as they began to open their mouths and pretended to know the reasons behind Job's suffering, it only made matters worse and it only frustrated Job more. Well, in chapter 38, Job's words and the words of his friends are going to come to an end. Not that Job has given up talking to God, but now the time has come when everyone has exhausted all of their wisdom, all their speculations. Now the time has come to simply be still and hear what God has to say. Now, before God speaks, there is one more counselor that we didn't really talk about last week. His name is Elihu. Elihu is kind of this younger guy who's who's a little uh, standoffish. He's not ready to assert his own wisdom because he wants to let the wise guys go before them and hear all of the wise things that they have to say. So he intentionally holds back at first, but after he hears the words of Job's friends, he is not impressed at all. And so he says, well, I think I need to say something here. And Elihu proceeds to offer up a word. In fact, he he rebukes Job. He calls Job out specifically For one thing, that Job, in his effort to defend his character to his friends, has gone just a little bit too far. And Elihu says to him, you say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there is no iniquity in me. He says, behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Elihu rebukes Job essentially for claiming to be without sin. He maintains that God, in fact, is just, and he further explains that just because we don't have the perspective to know why he is doing the things that he is doing, does not mean that we are right to question his justice. He reminds Job that God has these hidden purposes that are far beyond the understanding of man. And later on in the book, we gather that there is actual wisdom in Elihu's words, unlike the other three. Because at the end of the book, God is going to rebuke Job and Job, or God is going to rebuke Job's friends for speaking untrue things about him, and yet Elihu is nowhere rebuked in the book of Job. But even Elihu's word is not the final word. Even Elihu in all of his wisdom must now yield to the final word of God. For 36 chapters, we've been hearing all of the thoughts from people who are not God. But now, after man has exhausted all his words, God is going to speak. Job chapter 38, chapters 38 through 42, are actually the longest sustained discourse in all of scripture where God speaks directly. Isn't that interesting? Chapters 38 through 42, the longest sustained discourse in all of scripture where we hear God's voice speaking directly. It makes you think that maybe this is a section of the Bible I should visit often. (laughs) If I just want to hear God's direct speech, which applies to all of us today, Job 38 through 42, let me commend to you as a wonderful place to park. I got a text uh, from a church member earlier this week saying, after last week, if I could go back, I think I might have dedicated my whole life to just studying the book of Job. That would have done good things for me. After the service last week, when we had that, that awesome uh, time of prayer with Marcel, somebody else approached me and said, you won't believe how much Job helped me to persevere through cancer. And even as uh, I was standing out in the foyer today, somebody approached me and said, I can't hear, wait to hear more about Job because Job has gotten me through so much. It is a go-to text for me. And she cited Job 38 explicitly. Now, I will say, as an as a English major, a word-loving guy, the poetry alone, if you want to read Job 38 through 32, the poetry alone is just incredible. In fact, we had to study Job in one of our college literature classes because it was held up as an example of being the pinnacle of ancient Near Eastern poetry. It's recognized by scholars everywhere as some of the most beautiful poetry ever written. Duh. <laughs> it comes from God. <laughs> he made poetry. Kind of makes sense. But it begins here in verse 38, or I'm going to begin here in verse Thirty-eight. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Job has been crying out in anguish, and and I don't think any of us can look down on him for it, but he has been crying out in anguish and finding fault with God, accusing God of perhaps acting unjustly in his suffering. But now God answers, who are you to know, to claim to know the nature of my plans for you when you lack so much information? I remember just like it was yesterday, my submarine qualification interview, my board with the captain of the boat himself. This was the big one where he would have to decide whether I was safe and whether I was ready to be in charge of the ship so that he could sleep at night. And I remember in that interview him asking me so many questions that I felt like I had such little knowledge about. I had come to a point where I thought, I know a lot. I know a lot about how this boat works. I know about every system on this boat. And it was like everything he asked me, I didn't know. He would ask me some question further where it was just enough that I felt like I had no clue. And I felt sure that I had completely bombed that interview, bombed that board. And to this day, I, I really do think I did. And I was really just waiting for the pain to end. Can you please stop asking me all these questions? I don't know. But as we were wrapping up the interview, I think he just got tired of me not knowing anything. He said, well, Davey, it's clear to me there's a lot you don't know. But he didn't stop. He said, but what I think I can tell that you have learned is you have learned how much you don't know. And so I am confident that you now understand enough to ask for help when you need it. So I'm going to let you drive the boat. <laughs> and even as I think about that, one of my kind of heroes in the Navy, uh, really to this day, how profound was what he was telling me? There is this saying that we have, and I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's When you know just enough to be dangerous, have you ever heard that? Knowing just enough to be dangerous. How we can become overconfident in having some little amount of knowledge that we no longer think we need to ask for help. I think of God's interview here with Job as a sort of qualification board. Job, so you think you have what it takes to be in charge of my universe. Let's find out. Let's do an assessment. And hopefully, by the end of this, you will see how much you don't know, so that when you are in those places where you are completely overwhelmed and baffled by your circumstances, you will always know where you can go to find the answer or to find help. Job had spoken words without knowledge. Job's friends had spoken words without knowledge. We so often speak words without knowledge, and I think all of us would do well to take a tour like this with God routinely in order to reacquaint ourselves with just how little we truly understand in comparison to the one who knows all. A wise man once said, the older I get, the wiser my dad becomes. And I think it was Mark Twain who actually said, when I was 14, my dad didn't know anything. It's amazing that seven years later at 21, he has learned a whole lot. And I would say this applies quite well to our Heavenly Father and the relationship we have with our Heavenly Father. The more that we observe the wonder of his creation throughout our lives, the more that we are humbled by just how little we understand, the wiser God should become to us. The more that I just submit and take him at his word, the dumber I feel for having tried to go my way for so long. Anybody ever feel like that? So I want to read an extended portion this morning from Job chapter 38, just so that we all have this opportunity that Job had to kind of just sit here and be still, be still and get a sense of just how vast the knowledge of God is compared to what we know. And so as I read this this morning, let's just meditate on it. And allow ourselves to be humbled by how truly great and awesome our God is. I'm going to read starting in verse 12 through the end of the chapter, if you have that there. God says to Job, Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth And the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain, and a way for the thunderbolt, to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? These are constellations in the sky. Or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish their rule on earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds, that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings, that they may go and say to you, Here we are, who has put wisdom in the inward parts, or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom, or who can tilt the waterskins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? All right, how many of you are qualified to run the universe after those questions? No one? You see, if God in all his wisdom has formed with his hands this massive round ball of clay, which we inhabit, and he's made it in such a way that it's able to sustain all varieties of life, if he controls the rising and going down of the sun, if he sets the boundaries of the seas, if he has determined the changing of the seasons, and all of it in perfect order... And I have a friend here this morning who is a PhD in meteorology. He knows a lot of stuff. He doesn't know anything compared to what God knows of all this. If he has done and he continues to do all of this today, then might it just be possible that he knows better than we do what he is doing when he brings us through seasons of suffering? Then we come to the zoo. And I'm just going to read a few selections from this, starting in verse 39. Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? This reminds me a lot of Jesus's words on the Sermon on the Mount. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? God knows our greatest needs. Not only does he know them, but he is more competent. He is more than competent enough to provide for them. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? No, I'm asking you, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Okay, I didn't think so. Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow, in the, grow strong in the wilds. They leave and do not return. Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied its ropes? I gave it the wasteland as its home, the salt flats as its habitat. It laughs at the commotion in the town. It does not hear a driver's shout. It ranges the hills for its pasture and searches for any green thing. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will it stay by your manger at night? Can you hold it to the furrow with a harness? Will it till the valleys behind you? Will you rely on it for its great strength? Will you leave your heavy work to it? Can you trust it to haul in your grain and bring it to your threshing floor? Goes on further in verse 19. Do you give the horse its strength or clothe its neck with a flowing mane? Verse 26. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? He's talking about migration patterns, everything he has ordered and designed. Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? If God has determined the times of everything down to the gestation period of a mountain goat and a deer and the purpose and order of everything down to the wild donkeys and domesticated horses, if he has given strength and sustenance to each and every one, if he has thought through a billion tiny details well before either you or I or Job were born, And while you were sleeping last night, he was ensuring the preservation of a billion more. Upholding the universe by the word of his power, it may just be that he knows what he is doing in your suffering. Now, remember, we read Job with the perspective of God. We have the God perspective here as the readers. So we understand the cause of Job's sufferings and that it has nothing to do with Job's own sin. But Job is never going to understand why he suffered. Job's never going to really know the reason. He's never gonna know about that conversation that God had with Satan. And I wonder what if the reason for our suffering is actually to open our eyes to God in a way that our ease and our comfort will always prevent us from seeing. On Friday, Erica and I attended a funeral at Overland Hills Church in support of some friends there who had lost their baby last week after only an hour of him being alive. And at the funeral, Sam, who is the dad, said something that I thought was just Powerful and profound. In the midst of this great tragedy he said, a lot of thoughts have run through our minds after our son's death, but one has stuck out to me, and that is this. I understand why people chase after the desires of the flesh, why people seek out drugs, alcohol, or the attention of others, or seek out multiple partners. Not that I am any better. I too once pursued that life to the fullest. But it is because they have not been overwhelmed by this mercy and this overwhelming peace that only faith in the Lord Jesus can give you. And then he said, Though we appear to be a wreck right now, we have peace. Where does that come from? How how could he say something like that in the midst of a tragedy this great? This side of heaven, Sam and his wife will never fully understand the why. They won't. We we can kind of speculate about things God will will use from it to make them stronger, but they will never fully understand the why. This side of heaven, Job would never understand the why. Why? But it seems that it was his finally laying down the why questions at the feet of God that Job's trust was most authentically expressed and that God was most intimately known to him. You see, if God had told Job how it was all going to turn out in the end, I wonder would he have come to know God in the same way that he did? And I feel like I keep coming back to this week after week through this series. But I just think of Jesus' words to Thomas, who refused to believe Jesus until he saw the mark of the nails in his hands. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, you believe because you have seen, but blessed is the one who has not seen and yet has believed. The confidence that Job has in God does not come from knowing the exact reason for his suffering or the future outcome of his suffering. How many of us want to know in that moment what God is going to do tomorrow or the next day or the next day? But that is not going to bring about the cure for Job. And at this point, he's still covered from head to toe with sores. His confidence instead comes in knowing the God God is above it all chapter 42 then Job replied to the Lord I know that you can do all things no purpose of yours can be thwarted you asked who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge surely I spoke of things I did not understand things too wonderful for me to know You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Here's my favorite part. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Douglas O'Donnell, in his book on Job, The Beginning and End of Wisdom puts it like this. What Job finally grasps is that God has an inescapable purpose in all he does. Even if that inescapable purpose is never revealed to the creature, it affects. What Job finally saw clearly is that he could not see clearly. What Job finally saw clearly is that he could not see clearly. God doesn't offer Job healing, and he certainly doesn't offer him a restored self-esteem. There is no therapeutic babble from the tongue of God. There is no healing here from the hand of God. And the beauty is that Job is not concerned about those things anymore. Job doesn't want anything but God. That's what God offers, and that's what Job takes. Now, why do the righteous suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people? If you come to me and you ask me that question, I will tell you a lot of reasons and things that I have to go off based on what I'm told in Scripture. But for your particular situation, I will not be able to tell you the exact reason why God is taking you through suffering. I am not God. I do not always know. But what I do know is that there are an infinite number of things that I don't know, but God does. And I also know that the cure to Job's pain or to your pain is never going to come through a simple, direct answer to that question, if you're looking for it. The cure will not even come through his healing or restoration of your wealth, though that is how the book concludes. Job is restored. No, the cure to Job's pain ultimately comes from knowing God himself. God himself is Job's cure. Everyone was trying to make sense of how a just God could allow the righteous to suffer. And here is God saying, what you need far more than for me to answer that question is for you to know me and to trust that I am good. Now that's where it ended with the book of Job. But far from being the end of the story, the book of Job was actually setting us up. The book of Job was preparing God's people to receive himself in a way that they never had before. The book of Job is meant to point us forward to a gospel wherein a truly righteous, truly blameless, truly innocent man would suffer an even more excruciating trial. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our Lord Jesus would cry out on the cross. Why should the innocent suffer? I don't always know. But what I do know is that the one time in human history when the only man who could bear the title of blameless did suffer the most unjust suffering, it was ordained by God to bring you and me into a full fellowship. Right standing everlasting covenant with the Almighty God as He died to take away our sins. So bring your why questions before God this morning, knowing that He hears you. Bring your why questions before God this morning, knowing that He loves you and that He knows what you need far better than you do. But know that there is no greater peace. To be found than entrusting your life to the God who knows, knowing that your sins have been forgiven in Christ. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. This is eternal life, that they may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Brothers and sisters, when you encounter eternal life himself, in time, those why questions, though they will still linger, they will still be there, will become less and less important to you in comparison to the joy of knowing him. So let's keep our eyes fixed on him.